we're going to do, oh, can I have my slide up, please? I want to see if this works. Right, yes? Ah, being Jonah. Um, tonight, I, I, last time I was here, we, we spoke about something in the New Testament. We looked at the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. And I thought tonight what we might do is drop back into the Old Testament. In particular, we're going to go back into the Minor Prophets, or Scargill's 12, as they are known colloquially. And the Minor Prophets consisted of prophets... Well, in fact, if you think about it, the Old Testament's divided into four parts. Uh, we've got the law, which, of course, is still very important, is the Jewish law. Then we've got the histories, which gives the whole history of Europe... Uh, Europe, the whole history of the Jews going through... Uh, and then we get into the, um, the poetry, uh, and then finally we get into the prophets. And Jonah is part of the minor prophets. We've got the major prophets and the minor prophets. Um, they're not minor because they're unimportant. They were classified as minor uh, because each one of them is relatively short compared to the... And when I say relatively short, I don't mean Ronnie Corbett. I mean that their writings are relatively short. And so, therefore, uh, we're going to look at the book of Jonah tonight, uh, which is fantastic, absolutely unbelievable book. Now, rather than uh, just read it to you, because it is, it is quite long, I thought that what I would do is we would present it in the form of a quasi-play. So if I can have my two actors come up, please, Martin and Carol. Martin, if you'd like to stand there. And lovely, thank you very much. Um, I will take the part of the narrator, and Carol, and by the way, guys, I'm the only one with a microphone, you're going to have to project. Oh, there's another one, that, yeah, but I can't pass it backwards and forwards because it gets a bit, oh, we're going to get even more than one, okay, here we go, you get one, and you get one as well. Now see if you can turn the pages with only one hand, right, so, I'm okay, uh, and just to let you know, um, Carol, of course, is going to play the part of God. Jill, I'm sorry. I do. Where was Carol? Right. Jill, I do beg your pardon. Oh. Jill is going to play the part of God. Very apt, of course, because our women's cricket team won the World Series this afternoon. Whoa. Absolutely right. So we have a lady God, which is fantastic. And then Martin is going to be playing the part of Jonah. Now, I make no comment here, but in essence, as we shall see, Jonah is nothing more than a teenager that wouldn't grow up. And I suddenly thought to myself, how apt, this might very well... Yes, thank you, Sarah, how apt. <laughs> so, in we go, and we're going to do it in two parts, and I'm going to have a little chat in between the two parts. You still with me? Oh, you're with the Woolwich, aren't you, right? Okay, so here we go. Running away from God. Jonah was a prophet who had served Jeroboam, who had presided for 41 corrupt and sinful years in Israel. Then one day, God's word came to Jonah... Up on your feet and on your way to the big city of Nineveh. Preach to them. They're in a bad way and I can't ignore it any longer. But Jonah got up and went in the other direction to Tarshish, running away from God. He went down to the port of Joppa and found a ship headed for Tarshish. He paid the fare and went aboard, joining those going to Tarshish, as far away from God as he could get. But God sent a huge storm at sea, the waves towering. The ship was about to break into pieces. The sailors called out in desperation to their gods. They threw everything they were carrying overboard to lighten the ship. Meanwhile, Jonah was sound asleep. The captain came to him and said, What's this? Sleeping? Get up. 
pray to your God. Maybe your God will see that we're in trouble and rescue us. Then the sailors said to one another, let's get to the bottom of this. Let's draw straws to identify the culprit in this ship who's responsible for this disaster. So they drew straws. Jonah got the short straw. Then they grilled him. Confess, why this disaster? I'm a Hebrew. I worship God, the God of heaven who made sea and land. At that, the men were frightened, really frightened, and said, What on earth have you done? As Jonah talked, the sailor realized that he was running away from God. They said to him, What are we going to do with you to get rid of this storm? By this time, the sea was wild, totally out of control. Throw me overboard into the sea, then the storm will stop. It's all my fault. I'm the cause of the storm. Get rid of me and you'll get rid of the storm. But no. The men tried rowing back to shore. They made no headway. The storm only got worse and worse, wild and raging. Then they prayed to God. Oh God, don't let us drown because of this man's life and don't blame us for his death. You are God. Do what you think is best. They took Jonah and threw him overboard. Immediately, the sea quietened down. The sailors were impressed and in awe of God. They worshipped God, offered a sacrifice and made vows. Then God assigned a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the fish's belly three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to his God from the belly of the fish. In trouble, deep trouble, I prayed to God. He answered me. From the belly of the grave, I cried, help. You heard my cry. But I'm worshipping you, God, calling out in thanksgiving. And I'll do what I promised I'd do. Salvation belongs to God. Then God spoke to the fish. And it vomited up Jonah onto the seashore. Thank you. I'll have you back in a minute, please. So let's just take a, a wee look at that. This is probably one of the best-known stories that you're going to get. I mean, you go out to people and you go, Jonah and the whale, and they go, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I learned that in Sunday school, or even not in Sunday school, but they did it. Um, and we all tend to know it. And if you said to people, you know, do you know anything about the minor prophets? And they go, no, not at all. And they don't realize that Jonah's one of the minor prophets. It was probably written somewhere about 800 to 750 BC, but again, that's debatable. We don't really know. But it was written at a time when the Assyrians were the main power in the area, and they were a threat to both kingdoms. Remember, in those days, there were two kingdoms, the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom. The North Kingdom was called Israel. The South Kingdom was called Judah. And so, uh, okay, that is working, but, ah, oh, there we go. And I said the Assyrians were all-powerful. And let me explain why the Assyrians were all-powerful. This is what they were after. From here down in the Dead Sea, right the way round and back down through to Babylonia, as far as Eridu, that is called the Fertile Crescent. That's where the money was. And the Assyrians were ultimately going to conquer the whole lot. In fact, not only did they conquer down as far as the Dead Sea, they went even further and conquered the delta of Egypt as well, because that, again, was a very fertile area. And the Assyrians were a terrible people. Now, <laughs> what do we know about the Assyrians? Well, one of the main Assyrian cities, which was Nineveh, 
contained several royal palaces. It was probably the most important city in its time of the whole area. It was absolutely famed for its oppression of the weak and the godlessness of it. The Assyrians were actually a really ruthless people. They were very cruel to absolutely everyone around them. You did not want to get into the hands of the Assyrians. In fact, later, they did destroy the northern kingdom in 721. But for most, Nineveh stood for everything that they feared and hated. In fact, if one was to look at an advert for the Assyrian tourist guide, it might offer you the following joys on your holiday. Walk through one of our most important cities. Oh, it takes about three days to walk across. There's no trams, no nothing like that. It's a three-day walk. It's a big, big, big city. Secondly, come and visit our royal palaces. Um, you'd probably end up as a slave, but that's another point. Observe our world-famous cruelty and hedonistic practices. Marvel at our suppression of the poor. Oh, yes, even if you were a Syrian, you didn't want to be poor because that was bad luck as well. And trudge in fear that we will invade your land. Oh, yes, indeed. And to be honest with you, for somebody like Jonah, Nineveh was the nearest thing, probably, to hell that he could imagine. So, what happens? Well, the first thing that happens is that we've got Jonah. Now, Jonah is a Hebrew. He comes from a place called Gath Hefer, which is, if you can just see there, it's right up near the Sea of Galilee, and it's very close to Nazareth. In fact, you are going to notice some incredible similarities on the way through with somebody else who came from that area. God calls Jonah to go east. He calls him to go to Nineveh. And you can see, if you can see the word Assyrian Empire just above the P, you can see Nineveh up there. But unfortunately, Jonah doesn't want to know. What Jonah wants to do is to go to Tarshish, which is probably on the western side of Spain before you get to Portugal. And this was probably about 2,000 kilometers. And remember, we are talking here about Iron Age boats. We're not talking about the QE or anything else like that. It is an Iron Age boat that is going to make that trip. And they did indeed make it. This, by the way, I should add, Tarshish was probably the most western aspect that anybody from his region traded in. And Nineveh was probably the most eastern. So God says, go to the air. And he goes as far away, as far as he's concerned, to the end of the world to get away from God. And of course, Jonah being Jonah is really not worried about all of this. He's on the boat, he goes to sleep, and God sends an enormous storm, and he stays asleep. The first thing the sailors do is they throw all the cargo overboard. Well, in those days, the boat was going to get swamped, and therefore, chuck it overboard and keep yourself afloat. That didn't work. And then they did something that was very common in those days. They would draw lots to see whose fault it was. And guess what? Jonah won. Uh, he must have been so pleased. And then, of course, they then query him. And Jonah turns around and tells them what he's doing. He is running away from his God. And they then say, well, what do we do? And he says, in a very 
Kevin-style approach. I don't know if you remember Kevin off the television. You know, oh, I didn't ask to be born. You know, Kevin go, you know, and he goes, you know, throw me overboard. Just throw me overboard. And they don't. The first thing they do is they try and row for shore. They try and save him. But of course, God just makes the waves even worse. And so therefore, they just don't go anywhere at all. And then they realize, that's it. They're not going to get out of this. So they decide they will throw him overboard. The interesting thing is, the moment that he's overboard, well, in fact, even before that point, all of the sailors and the captain have converted to God. They have given up all of their own gods and they have taken on board the true God. Now, I'm going to prove to you tonight that Jonah is, in fact, the best evangelist this world has ever known. Ever. Here's the start of it. So, the whole of the ship get converted. And, of course, immediately they throw him overboard. God dissipates all the waves, dissipates the storm, everything calms down. Unfortunately for Jonah, when he goes over the side, God arranges for him to immediately be swallowed by a large, well, we call it a whale, but it doesn't actually say it's a whale in the Bible, but it's a large fish. And he stays inside this fish for three days. Notice again another similarity here. For three days, he is inside the fish in his own personal hell. And then he prays to God. And God then has mercy on him. And in fact, it actually does use the word. He vomits up Jonah. And by all accounts, it looks as if he vomits him up somewhere around about Tyre, which is just the land point up there. And that takes us for the basic story. So if I can have my guys back again, we'll do the second part. Which actually starts with God, so whenever you're ready, Jill. Upon your feet and on your way to the big city of Nineveh, preach to them. They're in a bad way, and I can't ignore it any longer. This time, Jonah started off straight for Nineveh, obeying God's orders to the letter. Nineveh was a big city, very big. It took three days to walk across it. Jonah entered the city and went one day's walk and then preached. In 40 days, Nineveh will be smashed. The people of Nineveh listened and trusted God. They proclaimed a citywide fast and dressed in sackcloth to show their repentance. When the message reached the king of Nineveh, he got up off his throne, threw down his royal robes, dressed in sackcloth, and sat down in the dirt. Then he issued a public proclamation throughout Nineveh, authorized by him and his leaders. Everyone must turn around, turn back from an evil life and the violent ways that stain their hands. Who knows? Maybe God will turn around and change his mind about us. Quit being angry with us and let us live. God saw what they had done, that they had turned away from their evil lives. He did change his mind about them. What he said he would do to them, he didn't do. Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God. God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. 
I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. So God, if you won't kill them, kill me. I'm better off dead. What do you have to be angry about? But Jonah just left. He went out of the city to the east and sat down in a sulk. He put together a makeshift shelter of leafy branches and sat there in the shade to see what would happen to the city. God arranged for a broadleaf tree to spring up. It grew over Jonah to cool him off and get him out of his angry sulk. Jonah was pleased and enjoyed the shade. Life was looking up. But then God sent a worm. By dawn of the next day, the worm had bored into the shady tree and it withered away. The sun came up and God sent a hot, blistering wind from the east. The sun beat down on Jonah's head and he started to faint. He prayed to die. I'm better off dead. What right do you have to get angry about this shady tree? Plenty of right. It's made me angry enough to die. What's this? How is it that you can change your feelings from pleasure to anger overnight about a mere shady tree that you did nothing to get? You neither planted nor watered it. It grew up one night and died the next night. So why can't I likewise change what I feel about Nineveh from anger to pleasure? This big city of more than 120,000 childlike people who don't yet know right from wrong to say nothing of all the innocent animals. And that's where it finishes. There is nothing after that. That is the end of the book. Thank you. And that is one of the really amazing things, of course, because... It doesn't give you any answers. So let's just go back over that. So what we've basically got is, is this going to work? No. Okay. It's not working. That's, hold on, let's see if I can get it to move on. Ah, right, okay. God called him to go back to Nineveh again, and he reluctantly does. But remember, when he gets there, on arrival, he walks for one day in the city, and then he utters eight words. Forty days more, and Nineveh will be overthrown. I mean, there are various different interpretations of the words that he said. But basically, it's, you got 40 days, and then it's curtains. And what happens? The inhabitants, the Ninevehs, Remember, these are a people who are known for their cruelty, for their ruthfulness, for their hedonistic lifestyle, for their godlessness. After only eight words, the whole of Nineveh turns away from its previous life and converts to God. Now, you tell me any other evangelist that you know of, in eight words can capture 120,000 people plus all the animals because they even put sackcloth and ashes onto the animals as well. And then the king joins in and decrees that everybody has got to honor God, hoping for mercy. And of course, when God sees this, 
God being a compassionate, loving God, he turns around and he forgives them. He sees their repentance and therefore he says, I know I'm not going to destroy Nineveh. And at that point, Jonah is really, really jarred off. He hates the Assyrians with a vengeance. And he's now sorry he came. So he says to God, yeah, take my life, get rid of me. And God says, well, hang on, what right have you got to be angry? I mean, you can see in parallels with that in the New Testament. I mean, the one that always springs to mind for me is the workers in the field. You know, when along comes the master at the start of the day and he says, right, you come along and I'll give you. Comes along the middle day, you come along and I'll give you. Comes along three quarters of the way through, you come along and I'll give you. And he gives them all the same. And the guys at the start of the day go, well, that's not fair. Right? Because they're all applying real earthly concepts, as is Jonah. Jonah is applying really Jewish, Philistine-style concepts to what's going on. Even though, remember, he's already said... I know that God is a God who is just, who is merciful, etc. He just can't make that jump. And then what does he do? Instead of answering God when God says, what right have you got to be angry? He then goes east. Now remember, east is going away from Nineveh, away from his hometown. He's going as far as he can. So he's already tried to go to Tarshish as far as he can in the west. Now he goes to the other end of the city, which is as far as you can go to the east. And he climbs a hill and looks back at the city with a view of, well, I wonder if he'll change his mind again. Perhaps, perhaps he'll, he'll have second thoughts, and then he'll really send a thunderbolt. And, of course, nothing happens. Apart from God has a bit of mercy on him. And so God says, well, okay, let's, let's give you a bit of shade. So he builds a vine, right? He, uh, a vine comes up and covers him, a, a nice and leafy, and he's in the shade, and his sulky humor goes, and life starts to look a bit better again. And then, of course, overnight, God sends a worm, and the vine that was protecting him dies. And in the morning, Jonah is back to his sulky self, because he doesn't like it anymore, and he turns back to God, and he says, oh, no, just, just, Kill me. Just kill me. And then God again says, what right have you got to be angry? You didn't plant that vine. You didn't tend it. You did nothing to it. All you did was take benefit from it. And if it therefore goes, what right have you got to be angry? And it's the interesting part. I'll read you the NIV version of that last little bit. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry with the plant or about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many more animals? Now, the interesting thing about that is, that it is just left. The writer just leaves the reader with this question in the hope that what the reader then does is to turn around and go, well, what is the answer here? And to actually start to take on board. It is the most incredible book, you see, because if you go into the normal books of the prophets, it has a kind of a routine, particularly with the minor prophets. It basically starts off with God talking to somebody, the prophet. And God says, big problem here. Look at what these people are doing. And the prophet then goes to the people who are doing it 
and gives them the woe, which is, look, you've been doing this wrong all this while. And then he gives them the call to repent and turn their ways, and then hopefully they repent and turn their ways. God then turns around and forgives them, etc. But this is not about this. Here, the whole of the story we're looking at is about Jonah. There is only one oracle in here, and it's at the first part when God says, I want you to go to Nineveh because they need to hear that they're in the wrong. That's the only oracle in there. The rest of it is a story totally about the prophet. It is very, very unusual. Now, the writer here is basically a very seasoned writer, as I'll show you in a minute. He's a very clever writer indeed. He knows Israeli history. He knows prophetic heritage. And he uses deliberate exaggeration. He uses irony. He uses distortion. And he uses repetition of keywords. When you actually go through and read it, you'll find there are words that keep going bang, 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 and they keep coming back up again. And he just uses contrast the whole time. I mean, the, the obvious one is, he says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, and Jonah goes to Tarshish. You know, he says, go west, and he goes east, or goes east and goes west. And it's written really like a quasi-folk tale, but it's not a folk tale. And the storyline is incredibly striking, much more than any one of the others, right? But God, in the other prophets tends to speak to only one person, which is the prophet. Here, God doesn't just speak to the prophet. He speaks to the wind. He speaks to the sea. He speaks to the fish. And he speaks to the bush. And he speaks to the worm. So God is really in here saying an awful lot to an awful lot of people. Now, the thing about it is that this is a very, very it's layered with meaning. There are obvious meanings and there are subtle meanings in here. But, okay, and there are, do you want to just hit the next one, please? Thank you. Uh, okay, okay, next one, please. Next one, please. Oh, next one, these have not been, ah, well, this is the bit, oh, thank you, I wanted to get to. Here is the book of Jonah, which is set up, and you can see it is, in essence, two acts. Act 1 on the left, Act 2 on the right. And they follow exactly the same routines. In Act 1, there's the word of God to Jonah. Act 2 starts off with the word of God to Jonah. Jonah's response to God. Jonah's response to God. The Gentile response. The Gentile response. The actions in the first one of the captain as to what he did. In the second one of the king. The sailors and how they react to him. The Ninevites and how they react to him. Disaster is averted. God calms the sea. In the second one, disaster is averted. He doesn't blitz Nineveh. Then you get the sailors' response. They basically convert to God. You then get Jonah's response. He doesn't. Here is a prophet who is constantly struggling against God. Then you get God and Jonah, and then finally you get God's response to it all. So the author, when he has written it, has written it like a metronome in the two acts. Next one, please. So, what we need to look in here for is, what was the meaning of this? What was the author trying to get at? And we can start to see how it works. First of all, by looking at how it was for Jesus and his generation. Now, Jesus, like any of the people, would have read 
well of the uh, stories, the Old Testaments, etc., he would know the story well. Jesus refers to Jonah's story three times. It's called, he calls it the sign of Jonah as being a miracle for the world. Uh, He specifically refers to the three days. And in fact, he talks almost about a resurrection. And he cross-references this to what is going to happen to him, what he's going to go through. Look at Matthew 12 or Luke 11. And of course, as you remember, Matthew and Luke, okay, they, Mark was written first, Matthew and Luke, they were written second, and they pinch an awful lot of stuff from Mark, but this isn't in Mark. They then pick up a lot of stuff elsewhere from what we call the Q uh, book, uh, and that is another book that they both have got, and then they have their own individual stories. But because they have both got the same story here about Jesus and Jonah, then we know it came from Q. It's likely as well that Jesus actually used Jonah to formulate his own thinking when he started to talk to the Jews, because obviously they would have known this story really well. Now, if you notice in it, in Jonah's story, he asked the sailors to throw him overboard to appease God. The parallel with Jesus is that Jesus, of course, comes to the cross to appease God for our sins. There's also a fractious parallel um, in that both Jesus and Jonah could be said to be reluctant prophets. Now, we can see exactly how Jonah is a reluctant prophet, but in a way, Jesus at times was a reluctant prophet, of which the most obvious one is when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, you know, Lord, Father, take this cup from me if you can, right? So I'm not saying he wasn't going to go through it because he obviously did go through with it, but he was reluctant to that really. But of course, Joseph, Jonah, he remains totally unrepentant throughout. A reluctant prophet, totally unrepentant. Jesus, of course, came to be all merciful. And then there's the Pharisees. Jonah has a parallel with the later Pharisees because the correlation is that they are both religious insiders who are angry with God as God does not fit into their constrained worldview of what God should be. You know, along comes Jesus and goes, look, this is what it's all about. Pharisees can't cope with it. It's all about rules and regulations. And for Jonah, he's also like that. He's also about rules and regulations. God should be God. Here I am. I'm a Jew. Look at that lot over there. You should be striking them down. He knows God is absolutely merciful. He even admits it in one of his speeches. But he can't cope with it. Of course, the book of Jonah ends with God posing a question and just leaves you, the reader, to think, what should happen now? Of course, with Jesus, the Pharisees solved it, only they didn't, by having him killed. There is an irony in here, though, and the irony is that Jonah was probably a much better evangelist than Jesus was. Because, if you think about it, he kicked 120,000 plus animals in eight words. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus was not the best evangelist that we ever want, but at the end of it, Jonah certainly had a track record in there. 
Oh, by the way, just for your information, uh, in under 200 years, Nineveh fell back into its old ways. It didn't hang on. It wasn't converted full-time. Uh, and that was fairly common with Jonah. Um, we do see him doing an oracle before, and he gets that one wrong as well, and he doesn't manage to hold this one forever either. But of course, in common, both Jonah and Jesus were more successful with Gentiles than they were with Jews. We look at it. What does Jonah do? He goes to the, first of all, the guys on the ship, and then Nineveh. He gets those converted. They're all Gentiles, right? Then, of course, with Jesus, Jesus ends up really out there with the Gentiles rather than the Jews. The Jews, of course, are the people who push him away at the end of the day. It's a very interesting thing, actually, because D.H. Lawrence um, made a comment with regards to this, the great writer. He said, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but it's a much more fearful thing to fall out of them. Jonah just tries to crawl back into his insular Jewish system and just ends up wanting to die because he cannot cope with a God who is so merciful, so loving, that he is prepared to allow the people of Nineveh to continue to live. And he is absolutely devastated. Of course, we see devastation as well with Jesus. Jesus was devastated when, of course, uh, he was going to be separated from God for those few days. Well, what's the meaning for us today? Uh, does, does Jonah, an, an Old Testament prophet, have any meaning for us today? The answer is very much so. Um, it's akin to a parable. It's, it's, it's a bit like an Old Testament parable that we've got here rather than a prophet. The top level for us is quite simple. God is everywhere. We can see that. didn't matter where Jonah went. God got to him, right? You cannot escape God, no matter what you do. And God is for everyone, not just for a select few. So that's the top level. We can all get that one. The subtler levels under here is we are here to do God's will, not our own. Jonah just wanted things to go the way he wanted them to. And that, of course, got squashed. Secondly, we must not try and fit God into our own box we cannot constrain God in any way, shape, or form. God is beyond our comprehension. And so, therefore, we mustn't try and go, well, here are the rules, they constrain God, and therefore, this is what will happen. Because it's up to God what God does, not up to us. We can only work in that. And the other thing is, of course, that it just shows in here that God is immensely compassionate. And as long as we reach out to him, then he will be compassionate with us. Please notice, Jonah was a complete nightmare. And what did God do to him in the end? Nothing. There's nothing in the book. Okay, so he ended up in a fish for three days. And he ended up with a bit of sunstroke at the end. But actually, God did not strike him down. Here was a prophet who actually, I mean, some of the books that you actually look at, they go so far as to say that they think that Jonah even hated God. He was so angry with God, he hated God. And that's why it just ends on that note. I'm not sure I necessarily believe that, but I'm at the end of it, God does not react. God is compassionate even with Jonah. Now, if you came to the last one that I did, you'll know that I mentioned a few bits about Jewish history, religion, and so on. I'm going to do, finish with some of it tonight because Jonah is incredibly important in the Jewish religion. And should be important to us as well. In particular, 
in September the 29th, the evening of September the 29th this year to the evening of September the 30th, is something called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It's when the Jews, as a mark of, a mark of repentance, right, try and come back to God for all the things that have gone wrong. And they actually, on the Saturday afternoon, so it starts on the Friday evening, goes through to the Saturday evening, on the Saturday afternoon, they will read the book of Jonah in full as a mark of respect to God. That's how important it is in terms of what it means. And it's a time when the Jews look and recognize that God has mercy for everyone, not just the Jews, but for everyone. It's a time when they recognize that you cannot hide from God. It's a time when they seek restoration with the whole of humanity, not just with God. And the thing about Jonah for us is that Jonah should be a trigger for us because we have weaknesses, we have failures, and Jonah is an example of somebody who just let the weaknesses and failures come right to the surface and never pull back from them. And it should therefore be a reminder to us that perhaps our weaknesses and failures, we should try and pull back and let God cover us rather than just doing what Jonah did. And what happens is, in Yom Kippur, is they have a concluding prayer. And the prayer I would like to use tonight, if I may. Now, I know it comes from a Jewish service, but, hey, you know, I think all prayers are good at the end of the day. So, if I may, I'd just like to finish with the prayer from Yom Kippur. Dear Lord, we have grown accustomed to sin, and the fragments of Scripture lie shattered in our life. Charity has withered with calculation, and the sparks of purity have burnt out. Yet still we come, and God who said, I have forgiven, whispers it again to us and waits for our reply. What shall it be? What form will it take? Let us repair what can still be repaired. Let us give back the gain we earn through injustice. Let us make peace with our injured brother. Let us restore the person we wronged. Let us admit what is false within ourselves. Let us put right what is wrong with our family life. Let us not sour the joy of living. May God give us the courage to do these things and help us rebuild our lives. And when we finished our tasks, May he permit us to enjoy the light sown for the righteous so that he can delight in us. The gates of his mercy are still open. Let us enter in. Amen.